So today we are going to be uh, looking at Romans 8, the part of Romans 8, 14 to 25 is my main focus. I entitled the sermon, Sons, Heirs, and Future Glory, mainly because I thought it sounded cool, but it also has something to do with the uh, topic as well. But before we, uh, before we read or anything, uh, let's pray first. <clears throat> God, we just thank you for this day, Lord. Uh, we just pray that you would bless this service, service God. Um, <clears throat> just bless everything that I say, Lord. Uh, let it all glorify and honor you. If there's anything I say that's wrong, just mute it from their ears. If there's, uh, well, just glorify your word. Help your word to be seen um, purely and uh, just let it be seen, God. Just thank you, God, and just help me. If there's any annoying habits I have, don't let that be getting in the way of your word, God. Just thank you, God, for all that you do, and thank you for being a God of love who loves us. Uh, just help me now, Lord. Help me to speak your word, um, and just help us all. Teach us all, even, even myself, God. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, let's start reading. Romans 8, starting at verse 14. <clears throat> For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willing, willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So today I'm talking about us being, as a church, children of God. And of course, Romans 8 is the main topic, so it's going to mainly come from there. There's three main points I want to make. The first is, we will look and see what it means now, like today, what it means to be sons and heirs of God. The second point, we will look shortly at suffering, which is a guarantee for the Christian life. And thirdly, we will look at what seems to be some sort of a future adoption, that is the glorification of our mortal bodies. So let's start with one. Romans 8, 14 to 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So we are sons and heirs of God. Now, being sons and heirs of God is intrig I don't know what that word is. Is connected with, his, with the Spirit of God. Verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's important to remember. 
And we know that we are his children because of the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, in verse 15 and 16 again says, you have, been, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it's important to note why the English text says sons of God rather than just adoption or just children of God or just sons and daughters of God. You see, in the first century, in first century Rome, there were some things men inherited that women didn't. The ESV Bible has this little note in it. It says, the English word sons is retained in specific instances because of the underlying Greek term that usually includes a male meaning component and it is used for a legal term in adoption inheritance laws of the first century Rome. As used by the Apostle Paul, this term refers to the status of all Christians, both men and women, who have been adopted into God's family and now enjoy all the privileges, obligations, and inheritances and right, inheritance rights of God. So what does that mean? It means that he's using the word sons of God in order to kind of refer back in that time that we have all the rights that receives with this sonship, in a sense. Anyways, what are some significances of being sons of God? I found two. The first is we do not need to fear. And the second is we have a personal relationship with God. <clears throat> so let's start with the first. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, it says to fall back into fear, which kind of implies that we've once feared something. What, the question is, what exactly did we fear? If you look at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, you can see this. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Jesus took the condemnation that we deserved upon himself. God condemned sin in the flesh. That is, Jesus bore our sins on the cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus did what we could not do. That is, perfectly keeping God's law. 100% never breaking God's law. He did this for those who walk not according to the flesh, that is, according to sinful, worldly, bad desires, but according to the Spirit, that are uh, obedience towards God and stuff like that. So, so here's something important. The righteous requirement ha of the law has already been fulfilled in us. It's not something that is going to be. It's something that is already. We already have the righteousness requirement of the law fulfilled. As in, God already did everything that he needed to do to save us from our sins. And that's why we shouldn't fear. John, 1 John 4, 17 to 18 says, <clears throat> By this love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but the perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. So we can have confidence in the day of judgment because we are as he is in this world. 
When God looks down on us, he does not see our sinful selves, but rather he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it's not based upon works. We know this as a church. We should know this, and I think we do. Doing things won't get us to heaven. Knowing things won't get us to heaven. Only Jesus can get us to heaven. And I think we know this again. Obedience towards God should be a result of salvation, not a way to get salvation. So we do not need to fear because we have the righteousness of Christ applied to us. We are righteous in his sight. 2 Corinthians 5.21 also says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So no matter what we do, God's not going to condemn us. Nothing we do, good or bad, can make God love us any more or any less. Get this, God loves you with the same amount of love he loves Jesus. Because when he looks at us, he sees Jesus' perfection and not our sinful selves. So therefore, don't fear. As a Christian, you will mess up. Repent, and with God's help, get back, because God loves you. He'll help you. So, there's the second significance of being called God's children. And the second one is, we have a personal relationship with God. No other religion, besides Christianity here, teaches that we can have a personal and intimate relationship with God as our Father. But the Bible does. Romans 8.15 says in our passage here, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now the word Abba is a somatic word, or the Jewish word, the one they used in that realm, in that day and age, for father. Now if you look, it says Abba, father. The other word is pater, which according to the books I read that told me that this was a word, it means father in Greek. So I guess the question is then, why doesn't he say Abba, pater, well, he, he does say that. Why doesn't he say pater, pater, or Abba, pater? In other words, why doesn't he just say father in the same language? Why does he use two different languages? Let me slow down a little bit for this, because I think this is really cool. Okay, so the word Abba, is, which means father, again, is used only three times in the New Testament that is preserved in Greek. So the first time is in Romans 8.15, the one we just read, so I don't need to read it again. The second one is Galatians 4.6, which says, And because you are sons, he sent the Spirit of his Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. The second one is Mark 14.36, which says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So this is an interesting thing. In both of these cases, it's Jesus, or it's either talking about Jesus, or it's Jesus talking to the Father. The one says the spirit of his son, and the other one is Jesus praying to God. So what can we conclude then from all of this? Well, because we have the Holy Spirit, that is, the spirit of adoption as sons, we have the same close relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Except, of course, we're not God, which is a good thing. We shouldn't be God. That's, yeah, it's obvious. So here's some things to remember. We are to be intimate with God, almost childlike. Sin should not keep us away from God because he loves us. He's, we're, we're, we are considered his children, and therefore we should not fear condemnation when we sin. We should come to him and ask him for help, and he will give us that help. 
And we can also cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, we can be sure that he hears us and we can desperately plead with him, know that he hears us. So point number two, God's children will suffer. We also see that being children of God does not free us from our present sufferings. <coughs> Excuse me again. Romans 8.17 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we are children of God, but adoption, our adoption is not yet complete, for we do not have everything that was promised yet. That's the glorification. I'll talk on that later. So glorification is this future aspect. If you look in verse 17, it says that we may be glorified with him. But, of course, we're not glorified yet. We're being sanctified. That is being cleaned progressively from sin. And it should not be surprising that a Christian will suffer. If you look at 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. By the way, I'm sorry, I'm throwing a bunch of Bible verses out. You don't have to flip to them. You can write them down if you want, but it's, it's just, yeah. Like, yeah, anyways. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you and tests you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. <clears throat> suffering. So we share Christ's suffering. That, of course, is speaking about the suffering through persecution, but much of our suffering can come from other things. Both Christians and non-Christians suffer. And much of the suffering could be resolved, again, from a sin-cursed world. It's not always a result of sin. Some examples here could be thorns and thistles, hurricanes, pain, death, headaches produced from loud children's, injuries gained in the workplace, emotional injuries, sickness, or, my least favorite, shoving sidewalks in March. These could also, though, be a, be a result of persecution. But while everyone will suffer, only a Christian will suffer with Christ. Romans 8.17 says, Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So when we suffer, we're not suffering by ourselves. We're suffering with Christ. Christ who suffered for us on the cross, of course, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. And it also teaches us that we're heirs with God and we'll be glorified with him. Now, by the way, an heir, in case if anyone's thinking it's a hair on your head, it's not. I used to think that. I was wrong. An heir is a personally, legally, according to Google, a, personally, a person legally entitled to the property or rank of another on that person's death. Now, of course, God, God didn't die here. But um, we have all his blessings stored up in Jesus Christ, which is really cool. But we see this, again, from the text. It says in verse 17 that we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So that's pretty cool. So this should provide hope. Suffering is only temporary, and we have much greater things awaiting us. Verse 18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's, not, it's, it's worth nothing. And it's, it's like dung compared, what we have right now is like dung compared to everything that we're going to have in the future. 
Anyways, creation itself also awaits these things. Seen in verse 19, which says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. <coughs> Excuse me again. And now we await a future glory, a glory even greater than the Garden of Eden. Well, the, the creation awaits that, and we do too. Another little snippet I got, this one's about glorification from gotquestions.com. Glorification is God's final removal of sin from the life of saints in the eternal state. <clears throat> At Christ's coming, the glory of God, his honor, his praise, his majesty, and his holiness will be realized in us. So, in the future, we will be completely transformed into the likeness of Christ. We will have glorified bodies. We will be sinless. We will be perfect. We will be pure, incorruptible. We see this in verse 21, where it says, The creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption. This, of course, is linked very closely to our adoption as sons. Romans 8, 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So the question must be posed. Why are we eagerly waiting for adoption as sons if we are already children? We see elsewhere it says we're children, so why are we waiting for this adoption? Well, I found that there's two different aspects of this adoption. The first one is the now aspect. I like to call it the positional aspect. And the second one is the future aspect, which I call the future adoption. Um, so let's talk about now, of course, because that's where we are, we're now. So first off, we know that the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. We see this again in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it's clear through other scriptures that we are already sons and children of God. So it's not, being children of God in a sense is not something that is totally in the future. We are right now children of God. If I were to call you a child of God, that would be correct. And if you call yourself a child of God, then that would probably be correct too. So, again, John 1, 12 says that to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians 6-7 says, And because you are sons, he has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. So God looking down on us, he calls us his children already. That's not a future aspect. We are already positional children of God, and we are. We do not have to wait to be able to call God our Father. God is our Father right now because we have trusted in Jesus and he has called us to him. But there is a future aspect of adoption. So what does it mean when it says we are waiting for adoption? Look at Romans 23, oh, 8.23. It says, We groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. So here, the adoption of son is actually linked to the redemption of our bodies. So, our adoption includes glorification, being made completely sinless and pure, and the fulfillment of all of God's other promises to us. 
Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And here's, I want to give you a bunch of verses. So, uh, buckle up. It says, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be have not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is, com- is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And lastly, 1 Peter 1.4-5 says this, that we were born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So therefore, there are two parts of adoption. There's the positional adoption and there's the future adoption. So let me explain these a little bit. The positional adoption is this, that God sees us as his sons in the light of the finished work of Christ but we do not have all of God's promises fully realized. So we are children of God, but we're not yet glorified, and we don't have every promise that he has given us, such as we're not on the new heaven and the new earth. And of course, there's still sin here. So we are still children of God, but we just don't have all of the promises yet. Now the future adoption is this. It's the realization of all the promises God has made especially the glorification of our bodies. So, in other words, that's when we are completely, when we have all the promises that God has made to us fulfilled. So the scholars, because scholars are usually right, call, us, call this the already but not yet aspect of salvation. We have already been fully saved. But there is a further aspect of our salvation that has not yet happened. I mean, first off, there's sanctification. But the one we're talking about right now is glorification, as in being completely clean from sin, like in an instant, as future. And the same can be said with adoption, which is included with salvation, really. Once we put our trust in Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit, and with him comes not only the promise of adoption, but the title of adopted children of God. Yet that's not all. For when Christ returns to make everything new, we also will be made new too, and we will see the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So, the conclusion. We hope. Romans eight twenty four to 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is referring to the redemption slash renewal of our bodies. It's being made new completely in an instant, sinless, perfect, pure, and completely righteous after Christ. And because we don't see this, we need to hope for this. It's not something we can see right in our eyes, but it is something we can see in Scripture, which is very important. It's a hope that is built upon the infallible Word of God. And we know that God never lies, so I think it's a pretty good, well-placed hope. And this hope includes some things like this. One day, sin will be abolished. One day, death will be destroyed. And pain will be no more. It's going to be perfect. And furthermore, might I add, that God will finish what he started. 
Romans 8, 29 to 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So notice how it doesn't say he will glorify. Although he will, as of right now, he will eventually glorify us. The point of this is saying that one day we will be like God. One day we'll be, well, one day we'll be perfect after Jesus' righteousness. God will not leave us incomplete. This is guaranteed. We will be glorified. It is going to happen. So, the application. Since we have the Spirit, we are children of God. And therefore, we can call God Abba, Father, which is, a very, per- which is very personal. And we need to be personal with God. Do not fear condemnation. When God looks down on you, he sees the goodness of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus died and rose again so that you can be forgiven. Don't forget that. You are to love, well, you are to, but you are in love with the same amount, in the same degree, in the same type of love that God loves Jesus with. That's pretty significant, if you ask me. Who can say that but those whom God has chosen? Another, another application. If you sin, go to him and ask him for help. He'll help you. And don't treat Christianity as a bunch of do's and don'ts. That's not, that's not how you do a relationship at all. You've got to love God. We love because he first loved us. Scripture puts it best. And another point here. Pray to God intimately, yet reverently, because he is God. And remember and thank him for who he is. Another piece is understand that while suffering is a part of life, it's temporal. And it's nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is to be seen. Now, suffering can take many forms. It can be, it can be spiritual, emotional, physical, all types of other forms, I'm sure. But just sometimes they last like a little bit. Sometimes they last all your life. Just remember that the glory that God's going to be revealing is going to be greater than anything you just experienced. Anything we're experiencing now, any type of suffering, is going to be so infinitely greater than... Uh, wait. Anything that we're suffering, when God reveals this glory, when he glorifies us, will be so infinitely greater. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, and the lastly... Keep your gaze heaven, heavenward. Don't forget that God will complete what he started. And don't sneak back into sin. Sin's not worth it. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died because of your sin. And there will be no, no more sin in the new heaven and the new earth. So we shouldn't sin. And again, when we do sin, because we are still in the sinful state, we need to ask God to help us, and he will. Just ask him. And let's remember that Jesus is so much better than anything else. And let's also remember this. The glory that we will be given when we are glorified is going to be so pale in comparison to Jesus. We must love Jesus more than everything. 
So with all application aside, remember this. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are a child of God. And not only do you, uh, do you experience a personal relationship with him now, but you're also going to be glorified and changed into Jesus' likeness in the future. And that is our hope. So with all, all that said, let's, let me pray for you guys. God, I just thank you for this day, Lord. I just pray that you would use the words that I said, feeble as they are. Um, just glorify yourself. Just take one thing. Lord, take the scripture that was read and let that just saturate their minds and let that saturate, saturate in my mind too, Lord. God, thank you. Just thank you for giving me this opportunity, God. Um, and just glorify yourself. Just glorify yourself through all this. Um, just help us, Lord, to pray to you. Help us to be intimate with you. Help us to love you so much more. No matter what we go through, Lord, let us remember that there is a greater inheritance that we have being glorified, Lord, being made like you, being perfect, being pure, God. Help us to remember that and help us to live like that's true because it is. God, just thank you for all you do and just help us throughout the week and throughout even the year and all our lives to glorify and to love you more and more every day. God, I just thank you for this and I pray all this in your name. Amen. And you're all dismissed.